My name's Tim Johnson. I'm the Senior Minister here at St John's. And uh, we're continuing a series that we've started together called The Generous Life, uh, thinking about how generosity uh, should pervade every aspect of our life as followers of Jesus. Uh, a few weeks back, I defined a generosity as showing a readiness to give more of something than is strictly necessary or expected. Generosity is really about exceeding expectations and giving to people beyond what they might expect or what they might deserve. Uh, And we've already looked in this series at uh, generous service, that as followers of Jesus we need to be willing to give our whole selves in service of Jesus. Uh, And last week Andrew spoke to us about generous hospitality. Uh, Hospitality, that idea of being willing to open ourselves and our lives to other people and to include them, that they might experience the love and presence of God through us. And today we're focusing on generous relationships. How do we behave generously in our interactions with other people? How do we include them? What are the things that we give uh, interpersonally that exceed what is expected? Now, being generous is hard enough at the best of times, uh, but today I want us really to think about how can we be generous to others when we're in the midst of conflict with them? When we have a disagreement with someone, when someone has hurt us or undermined us, where there's this simmering tension between you and someone else, how in those situations... Do we show generosity? Now, as you well know, this is not a theoretical discussion. Um, All of us, every week, if not every day, will be in situations like this with our spouse, our parents, our children, our grandchildren, our colleagues at work, uh, and yes, other people at church too. How in each case can we be generous in our relationships in the midst of conflict? Uh, This passage uh, that David read to us uh, from uh, Luke chapter 17, there's debate about whether Jesus is speaking about one idea here and everything that is said there is, is linked together or whether this is sort of a series of snippets of teachings from Jesus throughout this passage with only loose connections between them. And this morning, as we think about uh, generous relationships, I'm really going to focus on uh, verses 3 to 6 of our reading. If you've got questions about the other part, I'm happy to talk to you about them over a coffee uh, after the service. But I want to focus our attention on verses 3 to 6 because there's more than enough for us to cope with in those verses. So have a look with me, if you would, uh, in your Bibles. It's page 850 of the Pew Bibles, uh, and we'll have a look at verse 3. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Uh, This verse contains two ifs. Uh, If this happens, here's how we should respond. Jesus is sort of setting up these scenarios about certain things that will happen and how he wants his followers to respond. What are we supposed to do? And the first thing is this. What do we do if a brother or sister, and that language speaks about those who are uh, in Christian community with us particularly, what do we do when a brother or sister sins against us? How should we respond 
in those situations. And Jesus' response is, rebuke them. Now that does not sound generous, does it? Uh, We hear that and we think, gee, that just sounds harsh. Uh, Some of us even recoil at the language of rebuke. We hear that as being unloving, being judgmental to other people. But that's not the intention here and it's helpful to unpack what Jesus is saying. Firstly, Jesus is speaking about a situation, remember here, where someone has sinned against you. He's speaking about a serious matter where someone has sinned and it's a matter that needs to be dealt with. Now, in the Bible, if an offence against you is a minor thing, then we're actually encouraged to overlook it. There's lots of verses which speak about this, but Proverbs 19.11 is a good example. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offence. So in some circumstances, a generous way of responding to other people, if something is minor, perhaps unintentional, is to say, do you know what? I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to overlook it. I'm not going to let this damage my relationship with this other person. It's an active thing where you choose to overlook it. But there are things, aren't there, that are more serious than that, that cannot simply be overlooked. And really the key to work out whether something can be overlooked or not is exactly what I've just said there. Um, I'm not going to let this damage my relationship with the other person. If we realise that something is more serious, that it's a more serious matter, that we just can't let go, that's going to create sort of a wall between us and the other person, um, then we need to do something about it. Um, overlooking something is not a passive, I couldn't be bothered or I, it's too hard to deal with. It's an active decision to let it go and to overlook it. But there are things that are going to create a problem between us and other people. They're going to affect the relationship um, and so we need to say something about it because otherwise we're going to brood over it and it's going to result in a damaged relationship and perhaps bitterness between us and the other person. If it is a serious matter like that, what Jesus is sort of talking about, someone sinning against you, hurting you in that way, then something more is needed. So that's the first thing that I just want to point out, that this is for more serious matters that Jesus is asking us to respond. The second thing to point out about what Jesus is saying here is that he's asking us in these sorts of situations to speak directly to the person who has sinned against us. Uh, Often I think there must be versions of the Bible floating out there that says this. If your brother or sister sins against you, complain to another brother or sister about how badly the person has treated you. That's our most common response often, isn't it, when someone has caused us wrong. Rather than speaking directly to the person, we speak to someone else about what they have done to us. Now, I understand why we do this. Uh, We want to avoid a confrontation, perhaps. Uh, We might still be angry with the person for what they've done. And so we speak to everyone else about what the person has done except to the person who has done it. I want to say very clearly that this is not a generous response to the person who has wronged us because it draws other people into the problem and it makes those other people think badly about the person who has caused the wrong rather than actually dealing directly with the person who's at fault. 
This is not Jesus' way of dealing with these situations. Jesus' way is actually more generous and less harsh because he wants us to go directly and privately to the person who has wronged us. Not only in this passage, but in passages like Matthew 18, Jesus' directive is go straight to the person, speak face to face with that person privately and directly and sort it out with them. That's what Jesus is saying. If someone has sinned against you, rebuke them. Go to the person one-on-one. The third thing to say is this. Um, uh, Rebuke really is all about the attitude and motivation with which it happens. If we go into a conversation and our goal is to hurt and to punish the other person, then you will give them a harsh rebuke, won't you? But if before going and having that conversation with the person, you've first examined your own heart, you've taken other parts of Jesus' advice, like taking the log out of your own eye before trying to find the speck in the other person's eyes, that is, you've examined your own heart, you've thought about what part have I played in this conflict and taken ownership for your part in it. If you've prayed and asked God to guide your tongue as you speak to the other person, And if you go into that conversation with a genuine concern for that person, a genuine desire that you want this relationship to be reconciled, to be in a better place, then you will go and you will speak speak differently to that person than if you're going in with that punishing attitude. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to speak the truth, to say some hard truths to them, perhaps. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be honest about how badly you've been hurt you do need to lay those things out before the other person. But you can do it with a different attitude, with a different motivation, and you can do it in a way which is wise and will hopefully lead to a better outcome. Um, Using I statements to explain how you've been hurt rather than just pointing the finger and say, you did this to me. Uh, We we had a lovely wedding uh, here at St John's yesterday for Cam and Jacinta, from our Sunday at 6 congregation. And uh, when I'm preparing uh, couples for marriage, and I, I spent a bit of time with Cam and Jacinta um, as, leading up to their wedding, I often uh, refer to the marriage expert John Gottman, who's done a lot of work on helping uh, couples have uh, strong relationships with each other. And John Gottman points out that the tone with which you start an argument is pretty indicative of how that argument's going to end up. So if you start with harsh and attacking words, that's pretty much how it's guaranteed to end. And so his advice is soften your startup. Soften your startup. If you start softly, carefully, graciously, but clearly, you are much more likely to get a positive outcome from the interaction. Now, of course, you can do all this and it doesn't mean that the person that you're speaking to will like what you have to say. There's no guarantee of that. And I confess personally that often my first reaction when I'm confronted with something I've done wrong is to get defensive. Um, I don't actually do that. Um, But that's what I'm doing internally, snapping into self-defence mode, trying to justify myself, protect my self-image and identity. But the wise response... Uh, and we all need to learn this, me especially, is to actually to take discipline and correction as a positive way to grow. Uh, Proverbs 12, 
Verse 1 puts it like this. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. A wise person should actually receive the rebuke, recognising the wrong they've done, how they've hurt the other person, and see it as a way for God to grow them in godliness. Um, And if I reflect on it, uh, it is certainly true that I would rather that a person speak to me and rebuke me if I have done wrong, rather than allowing that matter to be swept under the carpet and to damage the relationship, to be left undealt with. Uh, It may not be comfortable in the moment, but when I know that it's coming from a place of love, a value for relationship, when it's showing me how I have injured a person whom God loves and I love too, then what a gift that is to me to help me to grow and to change and to be more like Christ. So as Jesus says, if a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. In the rest of verse 3, Jesus lays out the next aspect of generous relationships. And if they repent, forgive them. So if you want to follow this scenario through, perhaps there has been this conversation between the two people and it's gone well and the person has acknowledged their fault and turned away from it. That's what repentance means. What is the generous disciple of Jesus to do? Jesus says we are to forgive. Now what does that look like? I think it's worth unpacking what forgiveness is not and what it is, because forgiveness is a word that we throw around a lot, but we often have some uh, misunderstandings about what's going on. So three things that we need to know about forgiveness. Firstly, forgiveness isn't a feeling, it's a decision. Now, we might not feel like forgiving someone. We might still feel angry and hurt. And the point is that we don't need to wait until we feel like it to forgive, because if we did that, the time might never come. Uh, Ironically, once we actually make a decision, an act of will to forgive another person, it can actually lead to a change in our feelings. But forgiveness is a decision that we make to choose to forgive another person, and the feelings may actually follow rather than drive that decision. Secondly, forgiveness is not forgetting. Uh, We often link those two things together, don't we? We say forgive and forget, uh, but they shouldn't be confused with each other. Forgetting is a passive process. If we forget something, then a matter fades from our memory uh, with the passing of time. It disappears. But forgiveness is an active process. It involves a conscious and deliberate course of action. So if you think about it, when uh, God speaks of forgiving us, Um, This is some of the language that is used. In Isaiah 43, 25, when God says that he remembers your sins no more, he's not saying that he can't remember them. He's promising us that he won't remember them. When he forgives, he chooses not to hold them against us, not to keep bringing them up, not to keep recounting them, not to let them stand between us in that relationship. Thirdly, forgiveness is not excusing what someone else has done. Uh, Too often when someone says, I'm sorry, what's the response that we give? We say, that's okay, or don't worry about it. But the whole point of an apology and forgiveness 
is that it's needed because it wasn't okay and this matter was serious enough that we were worried about it. The very fact that forgiveness is needed and given is that someone did something wrong and something that is inexcusable. Forgiveness is saying, we both know that what you did was wrong and not excusable, but I forgive you for it anyway. In fact, the word for forgiveness that's used here in the Bible has the meaning of let go or remit, release the other person. You're releasing the other person despite the fact that they've done you wrong. Uh, It often refers, this word, to debts that have been paid in full or which have been cancelled in full. So by forgiving someone, you're releasing them from a debt that is owed to you because you've wronged them. Um, When uh, Joseph uh, meets with his brothers after, uh, after their father has died and the brothers who have done wrong to Joseph treated him terribly, Um, after their father dies they're very worried about how Joseph is going to treat them they use this sort of language when they come to him they're concerned that he's going to pay them back for what they have done to him and in actual fact in forgiving them he chooses not to pay them back but to release them from the debt that they might owe him for the wrong that they have done so if we refuse to forgive a person What we're trying to do often is to keep extracting the debt that we feel that they owe to us, okay? Punishing them for being cold, uh, punishing them by being cold and aloof, Um, maybe punishing them by giving up on the relationship, Uh, punishing them by inflicting emotional pain on them, gossiping about them, lashing out at them, seeking revenge upon them. It's a way that we try and make ourselves feel like they are paying for what they've done to us. But actually, as we know, it costs us, doesn't it, when we do that. Uh, The Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers uh, said this, unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. The alternative is to make a conscious decision to release the person through forgiveness and in the process to release ourselves from trying to extract payment from them in some way. Jesus says, if they repent, forgive them. So it means actively choosing to release the other person despite their wrong. Which makes sense of why Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Are you kidding me? If they keep doing it repeatedly, you're supposed to forgive them. But Jesus challenges us here. He says, yes, because each time you're releasing them from the debt. He's describing a radical generosity of relationship here, radical forgiveness, which is willing to bear a cost, as all generosity does, willing to bear a cost for the sake of the relationship with the other person. Now, having said all that, there are, of course, as we know, complex questions, aren't there? Jesus is uh, not dealing with the variety and complexity of situations that we might face. Uh, And there may be many questions uh, screaming out in your head or spinning around going, but what about this and what about that? Uh, One question which I uh, have and which I feel I need to address is with this talk of repeated sin and repeated forgiveness, 
You know, what about situations of abuse? What about situations of domestic violence where there's a cycle of violence followed by remorse, followed by forgiveness, followed by violence and a repetition of the cycle round and round again? Is Jesus saying that a person needs to stay in that sort of cycle of violence to just forgive and keep going round and round? Is that what he's saying? No. Absolutely, definitively, no. This is a big issue, but let me say briefly why the answer is such a clear no. Firstly, remember, Jesus is speaking about a situation where there is repentance. Right? Repentance means more than just remorse or feeling sorry. Repentance actually means real and concrete turning away from your actions, changing your behaviour. In a cycle of violence, there's a lack of repentance, actually. There's a lack of changed behaviour, and so people shouldn't stay in a situation like that. Secondly, even when forgiveness is granted, there may be ongoing consequences of sin. Uh, the Bible often speaks about reparations that need to be made as a result of sin. Right? Forgiveness releases a person from the debt of guilt, but they may still need to do something to repair the problem that they've caused. There may still be consequences for their actions. And especially in situations where there's been an abuse of power, there need to be protections put in place to protect those who are vulnerable. Now, none of that undermines what Jesus is saying here, but there are complexities to be understood, and we're just dealing with a few verses here, and the, the whole of the scriptures actually deal with a variety of circumstances which unpack more of what Jesus is teaching here and shows us that there is wisdom needed amidst this teaching. But the point of Jesus still stands. He, want us, he wants us to be people who confront sin face to face and where there is repentance, he wants us to be people who forgive and who keep on forgiving. Now we should be under no illusions that what Jesus is asking us to do here is easy. Right? You only need to look at the response of the disciples in verse 5 to recognise that this is not a simple thing that Jesus is asking us to do. Uh, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Right? They recognise that what Jesus is calling on them to do is incredibly hard and they need faith to do it. And Jesus' response to them emphasises that what they need is not a greater quantity of faith, but to remind them of the power of even a little faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, which is powerful enough even to uproot a mulberry tree, which was renowned at the time for its underground root system. And what Jesus is saying is that even when something seems impossible to us, it can be done when we rely on God. And this is absolutely true when it comes to forgiveness. To forgive someone who has sinned against you often seems impossible, doesn't it? To keep forgiving people who keep sinning against you is harder still. But if we trust in God and rely on his help, he will enable us even to do the impossible and to live radically countercultural lives. Um, I'm reminded of the famous story, you may know this story, um, about Corrie Ten Boom, who was a prisoner in the Nazi concentration camp of Ravensbrück. She was there with her sister Betsy. Um, they had uh, hidden and protected uh, Jews from the Nazis, but had been caught and sent to the concentration camp. And after she escaped uh, at the end of the war, after she was released, she was uh, an itinerant preacher 
and she was preaching in a church about the forgiveness that God offers us. And she was reminding the congregation that if we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean and she said they are gone forever. And after the service, after she'd preached, uh, a man came up to speak to her and she recognised him as one of the prison guards from Ravensbrook. But he didn't recognise her. He didn't recognise her, but she knew who he was. And she writes this. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. She continues a bit later writing, And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Now, we may not be in such a dramatic situation as that, but the point, I think, is that Jesus, who calls us to radically generous forgiveness, is able to supply by his Holy Spirit what we need to carry out the task. I don't believe that Jesus asks us to do things without supplying what we need if we ask him to do it. And indeed, the entire motivation for being people who would offer generous forgiveness to others is that we serve a generous God who has generously forgiven us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.13 sums this up beautifully for us. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any one of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As Christian people, we know that God has released us from sin and forgiven us with the cost of Jesus' own life. Jesus' death and resurrection does release us from our sins. And so as followers reflecting his character, being his people, having his name, he wants us also to be people who forgive and who show generosity in relationships to others. So let me pray and ask for God's help as we do that. Our Lord Jesus, we do recognise that this is a hard teaching for us, as with many things that you want us to do. It doesn't come naturally to us, it doesn't come easily to us. And yet we thank you that you do call us to a generous life, We thank you that you want us to be people who are generous in relationships, even when we're in the midst of conflict. So we do ask you to fill us with your spirit, to give us the strength that we lack when it comes to
confronting sin and when it comes to forgiving those who repent. Please remind us constantly that we are forgiven people, that you have released us from our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ and so help this to empower and to fuel us as we are generous to others and offer forgiveness in your name. Amen.